0: What I'd like to speak about this evening is compassion. And I'd like to begin with kind of evoking compassion. In Tibetan Buddhism, Avalokiteshvara is said to be the personification of compassion. So I just want to begin with a little bit of a reading. We evoke your name, Avalokiteshvara, We aspire to learn your way of listening in order to help relieve the suffering in this world. You know how to listen in order to understand. We evoke your name in order to practice listening with all our attention and open heartedness. We will sit and listen without any prejudice. We will sit and listen without judging or reacting. We will sit and listen in order to understand. We will sit and listen so attentively that we will be able to hear what is being said as well as what is being left unsaid. For we know that just by listening deeply, we already alleviate a great deal of pain and suffering. In modern times, one of the beings that I think of as being a living personification of compassion, is someone named Mahago Sananda. He's a, a Cambodian teacher who died just this past March. I was actually out here teaching when he died. And in one of the local newspapers around here, the headline was, A Legacy of Compassion. There was a whole kind of um, story about him and about what he did in, with his life and in this area. And so um, the, leg, the, the headline was a legacy of compassion. Mahogosananda was had a title. He was the Grand Patriarch of Cambodia. And he actually had little business cards that said Grand Patriarch of Cambodia. <laughs> that he would pass out when he met you. (laughs) He was somebody that traveled around this whole world, most of the time by himself. And um, at one point, Michael and I bumped into him in uh, the Tokyo airport. We were really just there for a short amount of time. I can't remember whether it was en route to that trip to Nepal, I told you about or not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but we were there for just a, a couple of hours and um, we saw Sananda and um, you know, it was such a delight to see an old and dear friend. And um, he was with somebody, a, a, a young man was attending to him. And then it's kind of like, you know, because we recognized him and, and, uh, and knew him, this young man passed him on to us to take care of for the time that he was in the airport. And that's really how he got around the world, is being passed on from one friend to another. At one point, because he was in ill health, and he was fragile, and he was up there in years, some of his um, devotees wanted him to travel around with people and not be by himself all the time. And his response was, oh, no, 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 I don't need any attendants. My attendants are wisdom and compassion. And, uh, of course, implied was that wisdom and compassion were what were keeping him safe. Mahakosananda was not in Cambodia during the Khmer Rouge regime, but during that time that he was away, most of his family and most of his friends were killed. He was one of the first Buddhist monks to return to Cambodia after the regime collapsed. And one thing he did, he tried to bring people together, and one thing he did was to lead peace marches across Cambodia. And as many of us know, this was a very dangerous thing to do because bombs could go off at any moment. He refused to see the Khmer Rouge simply as the enemy, but he really devoted a lot of his life to working towards the reintegration and harmony between them and the rest of Cambodian society. And I wanted just to read you something about him. Mahagosananda opened a Buddhist temple in a barren refugee camp of the Khmer Rouge communists. There were 50,000 villagers who had become communists at gunpoint and had now fled the destruction to camps on the Thai border. In this camp, the underground Khmer Rouge camp leaders threatened to kill anyone who went to the temple. Yet, on its opening day, more than 20,000 people crowded into the dusty square for the ceremony. These were the sad remnants of families an uncle with two nieces, a mother with only one of three children. The schools had been burned, the villages destroyed, and in nearly every family members had been killed or ripped away. I wondered what he could say to people who had suffered so greatly. Mahagosananda began the service with a traditional chants that had permeated village life for a thousand years. Though these words had been silenced for eight years of war and the temples destroyed, they still remained in the hearts of these people whose lives had known as much sorrow and injustice as any on earth. Then Mahagosananda began teaching one of the central verses of the Buddha, first in Pali and then in Cambodian, reciting the words over and over again. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is an ancient and eternal law. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is an ancient and eternal law. As he chanted these verses over and over, thousands began to chant with him. They chanted and wept. It was an amazing moment, for it was clear that their hearts longed for this forgiveness like a parched desert. And it was clear that the presence of this monk and the truth that he chanted was even greater than the sorrows they had to bear. Although he did these remarkable kinds of things in his country of origination, He also was somebody who touched so many people in so many kind of remarkably ordinary ways. And maybe even somebody here, or more than one of you, have your own story about Mahagosananda. I know when I spoke about him in March, one person came up to me and and had a story to, to share. My story about him is that when I was a very young teacher about maybe maybe 20 years ago, 22 years ago, that kind of time. I was teaching at CIMC then, the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, and I started a group for um, beginners, and it was a drop-in style group, so people would just drop in. They would drop in, and we would meet down in the basement of CIMC, and those who have you who have been to the center, and many of you here somewhat live at the center, I have to say. <laughs> when you leave this retreat, it's just like going home to the center. Um, you know, it's a really nice room at this point. And if you started um, going to the center in the year 2000, you never would have known it as anything different. But before the year 2000, when the center was run- renovated, this basement was a very strange place to be. Um, it had a rug that was a normal rug on the bottom of the floor, but then it kind of it, it looked like it was growing up the walls. <laughs> so it went like, you know, at least a quarter of the way up the walls. It seemed like it was even more than that. And then kind of, you know, over this sort of lip. Kind of thing, so it was kind of like you know, night of the living rug, kind of situation. I used to feel like that down there. So anyway, I was just down there in this room, and um, there were a number of people down there. I don't know, not not a big group, maybe ten to fifteen people. And we're doing our thing, and I'm giving the instructions, and you know, doing the best I can. And all of a sudden, this person starts coming down the stairs. And he um, is a monk, you know, he's a Buddhist monk. But any of you who knew Mahagosananda or saw him in person, you would know that he used to wear his robes in quite um, interestingly eccentric ways. Yeah, they kind of were always haphazard or falling off of him or, you know, this kind of thing. So he was just adorable. So he, um, this person came down and I recognized him as Mahakosananda. I had met him before. And um, you know, he just came down and he plopped himself on the floor. And this is really an unusual thing. With a young woman, um, actually it doesn't have to be young, with a woman of, of any kind, to just come down and plop yourself on the floor like that, um, it's not usually the style of, of Buddhist monks. So that was quite an unusual and remarkable and, and lovely thing that he just sat down. And then he he began being part of the class. I mean, he closed his eyes. He meditated. <laughs> um, and then afterwards, we had our usual question and answer time when people could ask questions. And people were a little intimidated by his presence. I mean, they had this was so far out from their usual experience in Cambridge that... Um, they didn't really know what to do. So people were a little bit shy instead of asking questions the way they usually did. But, you know, there were some questions. And then he decided, I guess, to ask a question. (laughs) And the the remarkable thing about it, I mean, it was just a, a, a question about the breath, a simple question about the breath. But I genuinely felt that he really wanted to hear my answer. You know, he knows the answer. He had probably said the same teaching Just, you know, countless times to other people. But there was that kind of freshness where he wasn't testing me. You know, he wasn't doing that kind of a thing. He was actually genuinely interested um, in my answer. At least this is the way he made me feel, which was a really beautiful thing. So I felt it to be so kind on his part and so supportive um, and just such such a beautiful encounter. to um, i'd like to define compassion and just to say a, a word or two about the difference between metta and compassion metta is as you know a sense of a friendliness and warmth you know, that really can can spread over all beings and uh compassion is more specifically oriented towards pain towards the alleviation of pain so in a way it's the same thing both are great but compassion has a little bit of a different taste to it because of the specific targeting of pain and suffering The Pali word for compassion is karuna. And what karuna means, or the translation of karuna, is the trembling of the heart in response to suffering. So this trembling means being moved by sorrow, being moved by suffering, being willing to feel. Instead of um, sometimes that frozenness, the frozenness of the heart, um, trembling of the heart. To be in contact with suffering, it also means caring for and holding suffering gently until it changes on its own. To break this definition down, the trembling of the heart in response to suffering, one word that's really crucial in this definition is the word response. In response, to suffering, rather than in reactivity to pain and suffering. So response means that first we need to open to it. We need to be aware of pain, of suffering. We don't want to deny or pretend it's not happening or push it away. So the first thing that's necessary is a simple recognition, ah, suffering is happening right now. Just to simply know the word in Pali is "dukkha, that suffering is occurring, unsatisfactory is hap- this is happening, pain is occurring right now. So we want to recognize it because if we don't recognize it, then nothing is possible. And then, and this is equally important, there is a reorientation that has to take place. And this reorientation is away from our conditioned ways of thinking, which means away from our good-bad, dualistic way of thinking. And instead, is there suffering or is there not? This is really the next step here. Instead of good, bad, right, wrong, ugly, beautiful, is there suffering or is there not? So we want to be aware of our relationship to suffering. Because that's the only way that our relationship to suffering can change. And compassion can be the natural, organic response instead of the reactivity that our conditioning leads us into. I told you about one of my nieces the other night. And I actually have four nieces. And I... I want to say I have four in case they ever grow up and learn the Dharma. and want to listen to a Dharma talk. I don't want to leave any of them out. (laughs) Four nieces, four beautiful nieces. (laughs) Um, Two of them um, I want to just just say a little bit about in relationship to a a very um, big situation in my life. My mother died in the year 2004, And she had quite a beautiful death. My sister and I were with her as she died, and my uh, father and my other sister were there a great deal of the time before she died. And it was very connected. It was um, very, very good, very rich, very serene, very beautiful. And um, because of the work that had been done beforehand, there wasn't a sense of... Anything left to say, or anything that needed to be done, really just the simple company of, of her, companyment of her, as far as we could take her. But um, during this time of her, of our knowing she was about to die, but her being in a hospital, and us all being around her, she was hooked up to different machines, of course, and. Um, She had a breathing tube in her, and she looked at certain times really different than she usually looked, you know. And so my nieces, of course, this is their grandmother, and um, they really adored her, and she looked different than um, they had been used to seeing her as their very comforting grandmother. And it was so interesting how they related to, um, to seeing her in this way one of them went, and they're they're both great, they both have their different strengths and beauties. One um, came in, and she just wasn't afraid at all. She went right up to her, and she took her by the hand, and the way my mother looked just did not face her. She went right up to her and started just chatting, you know, hi, Grammy. You know, my mother, of course, couldn't talk, but you know, hi, Grammy, how you doing, What's up? You know, but but just really connected, really so beautiful, and the other one um, hung back. You know, really loved her her Grammy in the in the same way, but she she couldn't come in the room. She was um, just kind of hanging around, um, you know, by the edges of the room, not really quite sure of how far she wanted to enter in. So just really different approaches. You know, when my gram, when my mother. Um, actually did die, the one who had been hanging hanging back um, burst into tears. And just recently with a family event that had nothing to do with anything but a joyful uh, experience, celebration, she broke into tears uh, just recently um, because of resonating with the fact that my mother couldn't be there. You know, so she felt it deeply. They both felt it deeply. But they 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 were with it in different ways, you know, because this is how we are. We are with suffering in different ways. I know for me, in this time period, I felt very accepting, and I knew that my mother's time was up, and that everything was complete, and um, it was time for her to go. And I um, I felt quite quite um, okay. Um, you know, certainly certainly a lot of different feelings, but quite okay. But then there was one point where um, I was with her by myself. Everyone else had left, and of course I was happy to be with her by myself, and I was just sitting with her, meditating, sending her metta. And um, all of a sudden, this was, this was about a day before she actually passed away, All of a sudden, I felt this huge resistance, you know, just this huge resistance of you can't go, you know, you can't leave me, Um, this kind of thing. And because I had been so accepting and I had really, you know, it was such a a beautiful experience, um, it kind of was um, a little bit of a, um, it was just a, a different, you know, I wouldn't quite say surprise, but it was, it was different. And then, you know, I was so happy that um, actually by the time my mother left, that had changed, that had passed. And so it was a different kind of leave-taking. But, you know, we just just don't know what's going to happen when we're in the midst of these huge events. And just to accept whatever way we feel I think is quite essential. You know, this resistance, don't go. It was kind of like one of my close friends who was in labor saying, I can't do this. You know, <laughs> Well, it's a little late, you know? <laughs> Compassion <clears throat> is the awareness of an inherent connectedness between ourselves and all beings. And I want to read you something. An ordained rabbi had written to Einstein explaining that he had sought in vain to comfort his 19-year-old daughter over the death of her sister. And this is what Einstein wrote back. A human being, wrote Einstein in reply, is a part of the whole, called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Nobody is able to achieve this completely, but the striving for such achievement is in itself a part of the liberation and a foundation for inner security. Now, I don't know about saying all this to a 19-year-old. It's a lot. But um, it's so so to the point. I don't know if any of you saw, but uh, those of you who live in the Boston area, but um, recently in The Globe, a few weeks ago, there was an article about a cat who... (laughs) some of you some of you read it, yeah, um, this cat lives in a hospice and um, lives in a, an area of this hospice where people who have dementia are being cared for as they die, and this cat. I guess this cat has has done this perhaps 22 or 23 times, something along those lines. So really a number of times, not just a fluke, not just once. This cat knows when one of the people in this ward is about to actually die. And then this cat jumps on the bed and stays with the person until they die. Jumps on the bed and starts purring. And so is there to, in a sense, accompany that person. And the people in the hospice so much trust this cat that they know when to call the family in. Because, you know, it's hard, of course, to know when to call family in. But they, they trust the cat. They actually have a big banner up that says, to our trusted and you know, wonderful hospice cat who serves so many beings, this kind of thing, that they call the family in. Um, when the cat decides to jump up, and the cat kind of, I guess, goes between the wards, just sort of patrolling, but really, <laughs> but doesn't um, doesn't jump on a bed unless it's that time. You know, doesn't like jump up and and um, purr with this person and that person. It's not like that at all. You know, he's it, the cat is kind of just alert to when the help is really needed. So. In um, metta practice, I'm, I'm so, for years now, I've been saying with the benefactor, you know, if you don't have a, a person uh, to send loving kindness to or feel it from, that you should use your pet. You should use your dog or your cat. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, this is really good, definitely. And you, you need to build up to a, a human being at some point. But I'm not sure now. <laughs> no? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm, that's kind of kind of gone for me. So we share this sense of fragility with all other bodies. This is our connectedness with one another. The other side of compassion, though, that is equally important, is an awareness of true nature, our own and others. You know, in other words, sensing the deathless and understanding that we share the deathless We share not only our fragility, but we share a radiance with one another as well. So really you could say that true compassion, a real, authentic, complete understanding of compassion, is the merging of sorrow and of joy. Compassion is, as the Buddha said, a pleasant sense of care. Now, the first time I heard this definition of pleasant sense of care, I had no idea what was meant, because it didn't seem pleasant at all to me. And this is really where we need to learn the difference between responding and reacting. We tend to react in the face of pain, of suffering, of sorrow, our own and others, sometimes by becoming numb. Sometimes by getting afraid, or by feeling helpless or paralyzed. Sometimes we feel angry, or sad, or judgmental. Sometimes the experience is one of being embarrassed or feeling shame because of suffering. And in responsiveness, and this is where the pleasure part comes from, it's a meditative kind of pleasure. In responsiveness, there actually is a sense of confidence. There is a sense of strength. There is a sense of capability. And when we feel confident and strong and capable, there is a real pleasure in that. Compassion is learning how to care. May I care for this pain. May I care for this sorrow. These are some of the compassion phrases. Just as there are metaphrases, there are compassion phrases. And the compassion phrases that I like best are these. May I care for this pain. May I care for this sorrow. Compassion <clears throat> is not guilt or pity because pity and guilt are reactions. Pity and guilt with this there's a sense of separation me over here feeling sorry for poor little you over there. Yeah, you know, almost anything is better than that when you're the recipient of that. I had a a recent just kind of experience of this because I um I had a huge bruise on my forehead from an acupuncture treatment gone bad. <laughs> Generally this doesn't happen but um <laughs> He really got the needles in there and um, really huge bruises. And I had to be in public. And um, it was so um, interesting to walk around in public with this huge bruise on my face and people reacting just in so many different ways. You know, some people you could really see that there was real concern, Um, some people just tried to avoid me, you know, (laughs) which always happens. you know when when somebody looks to be um, in pain, and some people just looked at me like poor poor little you, you know, um, which actually was not necessary in that particular situation, and is actually never necessary. Um, there's a, a a book called Hannah's Gift, which was written by a woman whose uh, five year old daughter died of leukemia, and she says this. Compassion does not feel sorry in the face of suffering. It knows that all suffering is its own. When we recognize this connection between us and everyone else, we know that we belong to each other. We do not suffer alone. Michael and I have a, a teacher uh, named Master Sheng Yen, and, um and he wrote this in one of his books. During... One Retreat, a student came to me in a very emotional state, saying that her compassion had been moved powerfully, that she felt pity for suffering people and wanted to help them. From her point of view, this seemed like a very good experience to have, but I scolded her, and I'll tell you, we know him. He definitely does scold. (laughs) So I laughed when I saw the word scolded. I thought that was accurate. But I scolded her, saying, you're just fooling around in sentimentality. This is not wisdom. In the mind of wisdom, there is no such thing as people needing to be pitied. Compassion is not simple sentimentality. It's just a natural response to help people. Compassion, as well, is not fear. And sometimes we mistake it to be fear. Fear is an inner recoiling. Sometimes when there is this inner recoiling, we outwardly tend to give advice. We're giving advice sometimes as a way to control the situation, the effort to fix, rushing in to fix and control. Sometimes fear is mistaken to be compassion because of our efforts to avoid conflict, our inability to say no, and thinking that always saying yes is compassion. Compassion must be aligned with wisdom. It is not compassion to let others work their torments of heart out on one. It's actually fear. Compassion as well is not anger. And of course, in the midst of certain situations, in the midst of injustice, oftentimes anger is the initial energy. That's just how it is. It doesn't have to be a problem. It's just that we don't want to live there. Sometimes it's the initial energy, and um, I think of what Eli Weisel said, that the opposite of love is not hatred, it's indifference. So that initial sense of anger, all right, in certain situations, yeah, it just is there. It's just that um, the question is uh, one of alignment, and this is so hard when we're uh, when we're trying to understand this in relationship to those that have caused harm, to those that have caused us harm. To those that have caused our loved ones harm, to those that have caused enormous harm in this world, it's not an easy area. But the whole question around anger—you know—again, this initial arising, so be it. But the question really has to be: What do we want to ultimately align our hearts with? You know, it's really a question of alignment. Do we want to align with love? Or do we want to align with bitterness? And I don't think anyone in this world wants to live in resentment and in um, hurts and in nursing private hurts and sometimes, of course, in pettiness. In looking at this question, whether we want to align with love or with bitterness, this awareness has the potential to cut through the clinging The clinging that, of course, is going to be there in certain situations. But it allows us to look more deeply, to look at the cost to our hearts. And when we look more deeply, we see that the cost to our hearts is just too high. This is something that, of course, we have to work with in very individual ways. But to not mistake anger for compassion. The times that um, that Michael and I have been in Burma um, it's been such an such an extraordinary experience in this way and you know Burma is an incredibly complex country so I don't pretend to to know it from the inside or um, you know negate how complex it is or anything like that. but I can say that my own experience of being there is that, And and this, to me, um, you know, kind of points to the power of the Buddhist teachings because some people there are certainly practicing the teachings in an extraordinarily um, committed way. It's kind of woven into the society. To me, there is a sense of the heart being intact. You know, great suffering, enormous suffering, but not having lost one's heart in the midst of enormous provocation. Compassion is oftentimes, of course, intertwined with grief. And how not, how not to grieve? It is an absolutely inevitable necessary phase in the midst of loss. And it's it's intertwined in some way. There is compassion and there is sorrow. We just want to recognize, we of course want to allow ourselves to grieve in the midst of loss and not have ideas about how long we should grieve. It's more like going with the waves of grief. You know, it's experienced now and then it's not. Everything's just fine and then it's experienced again with a real intensity, and then it's not. It's as if it it's just seen in a really different way, just kind of trying to keep up with ourselves in the midst of, of loss. And it's also recognizing the um, uh, the fact that grief is eventually enervating. It eventually zaps our energy, whereas compassion only strengthens our hearts. So to see if we can bring compassion to our grief, in our times of loss, to see if we can be deeply compassionate. The kind of compassion that the Buddha spoke about is unconditional. You know, as with all of these things, metta, equanimity, um, all of these things, mindfulness, the whole idea is that all of these qualities be unconditional. So compassion needs to be unconditional. And what this means is it includes oneself. This is what this means. I taught a whole class once and I thought I was clear. And by the end of the class, it was maybe five or six uh, series classes, someone came up to me and and um, thought that what I was talking about was only compassion to others because sometimes that's the way we think about it in this society. But actually, it has to go in all directions. It has to be extended to ourselves, to this body-mind process. It is essential. We must care for this pain, for this sorrow. You know, the fact is that all of us, all of us want to be blessings in this world. Now, I know that this is our our aspiration to be blessings in this world, and inevitably were problems. You know? <laughs> this is not how we would want things to be. You know, if we had a choice, we would only be blessings and never be problems. But, but the problem is we tend to share our misery with others inevitably. Our suffering does have an impact on others, although we would not wish it to be so. So it is actually our responsibility to bring compassion to ourselves. It's our dharma responsibility. Sometimes it feels better if it's an order than if it's an invitation. You must be compassionate! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Can we bring compassion to our pain? Can we bring compassion to our uncertainty our confusion, our unworthiness? Can we bring compassion to our longing, to our fear, to our irritation, to our rage? We must care for our own suffering because we're the ones who can do it best. Others in our lives can be deeply compassionate to us, and it helps enormously you know whenever we have a situation in which someone has been uh, kind and and compassionate in a time of need it just can 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 turn everything ar- around and and help so much really really touch us in a profound way but the problem is that it's never enough you know i mean if we were in a situation where we had somebody with us every single moment of every single day being able to offer only compassion, which would be probably a really unhealthy relationship to be in, (laughs) by the way, it still would not be enough. It still would not be enough. It can be comforting, but we always have to live with ourselves. It's also true that You know how other people can be suffering intensely, but we don't know that they are? And then we find out later either that they're suffering at all or that it's been as profound as it's been. You know, that that of course happens. Well, the same is true for us. You know, sometimes we think that other people should be psychic and know um, our moments of suffering. And sometimes people are really sensitive. And so we get kind of caught like everybody should be sensitive. But really, we can put on a good show and not show how uh, difficult things are at times. Not reveal our suffering. Not be vulnerable. And the fact is that no one can attend to us like ourselves. The Buddha said that we could search this entire world over and not find anyone more deserving of our love and compassion than ourselves. The other reason why we need to send compassion to ourselves is because it's the only way that we'll really understand empathy, that we'll really be able to understand the suffering of others, only by knowing. Our own suffering, our own sorrow, our own grief, and opening to that. If we don't do that, we're guessing. We're still at a distance. This is um, something by Rio Ken. The autumn nights have lengthened, and the cold has begun to penetrate my mattress. My 60th year is near, yet there is no one to take pity on this weak old body. The rain has finally stopped. Now just a thin stream trickles off the roof. All night, the incessant cry of insects, wide awake, unable to sleep, leaning on my pillow, I watch the pure bright rays of sunrise. Oh, that my priest's robe were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. Cultivating compassion is not a grandiose endeavor. We are not required to save the world, to find answers for all the complex difficulties in this world. It is something very possible for each one of us. I saw a bumper sticker some time ago that I liked. It said, I'm not trying to save the world, I'm just trying to help a child. I thought that was kind of suitably not grandiose. We are asked to explore the quality of our hearts. Can we meet what is, which is oftentimes suffering? Our practice is an ever-increasing dedication to open-heartedness, an ever-increasing dedication to open-heartedness amidst all circumstances in all situations. It takes great courage to live with an open heart. It is not an easy thing to do. It really is an inner devotion to compassion and freedom. And gradually through more of a sense of stillness and of presence, this becomes more possible. There is no formula or recipe. There's no one way that we're supposed to do this. There's no one expression of compassion. We really just want to do what needs to be done. So a person, in my opinion, contemplating in a cave with great sincerity and diligence may have an enormous impact on this world. Ultimately, it's a simple responsiveness, There is no one to be compassionate. There is no one needing our compassion. There is no giver or receiver. There is just compassion. The key is listening deeply, like Avalokiteshvara. I'd like to just end with a poem by Mary Oliver called um, Singapore. <clears throat> in Singapore, in the airport, a darkness was ripped from my eyes. In the woman's restroom, one compartment stood open. A woman knelt there washing something in the white bowl. Disgust argued in my stomach, and I felt in my pocket for my ticket. A poem should always have birds in it. Kingfishers say, with their bold eyes and gaudy wings, rivers are pleasant and, of course, trees. A waterfall, or, if that's not possible, a fountain rising and falling. A person wants to stand in a happy place in a poem. When the woman turned, I could not answer her face. Her beauty and her embarrassment struggled together, and neither could win. She smiled, and I smiled. What kind of nonsense is this? Everybody needs a job. Yes, a person wants to stand in a happy place in a poem. But first we must watch her as she stares down at her labor, which is dull enough. She is washing the tops of the airport ashtrays, as big as hubcaps, with a blue rag. Her small hands turn the metal, scrubbing and rinsing. She does not work slowly nor quickly, but like a river. Her dark hair is like the wing of a bird. I don't doubt for a moment that she loves her life, and I want her to rise up from the crust and the slop and fly down to the river. This probably won't happen, but maybe it will. If the world were only pain and logic, who would want it? Of course it isn't. Neither do I mean anything miraculous, but only the light that can shine out of a life. I mean the way she unfolded and refolded the blue cloth, the way her smile was only for my sake. I mean the way this poem is filled with trees and birds. Let's sit for just a moment. May all beings be safe and protected. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings live in love and in compassion. Thank you. Um, There's a walking period right now, as you know, and um, please be mindful in the walking, and then we'll have our final sitting at quarter of nine tonight. So be there or be square. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Seed